I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again, everybody. As mentioned previously, I am Jamie Trecker, and as always on I-94, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Yellow. And this morning, we are joined live from Kentucky through the magic of the phone line to Mr. Jim Elledge. He is the author of The Boys of Fairytown, a book out from Chicago Review Press that has a wonderful <coughs> subtitle that I want to read. It is The Boys of Fairytown, Sodomites, Female Impersonator, Third Sexers, Pansies, Queers, and Sex Morons in Chicago's First Century. Jim, we are delighted to have you with us today. How are you? Thank you so much. Good morning. I'm fine. How are you guys? We're great. Doing well. Doing well. Jim, I wanted to start out. Uh, this is a, for those of you that can't figure this out from this lengthy subtitle of this book, this is a history of uh, queer history in Chicago uh, and a very early uh, history. Uh, Jim is really concerned mainly with the first century of our city from around 1850 to, you cut off around the Hoover era, around 1950, 1960, uh, before. Um, most modern American queer studies started. Just to give people a little background, um, the study of homosexuality really didn't take place in America until around the 1970s. It's, it's only existed as a discipline uh, for about 50 years. If memory serves right, the City University of New York was the first university to have an accredited uh, study of, of homosexuality and homosexual history in America. And Jim, I actually wanted to start off by asking you because um, at the University of Chicago, a professor named George Chauncey in 1995 released a very pioneering book called Gay New York, which was considered a touchstone in gay history and gay urban history. And I wanted to start off there and wonder if that influenced you to say that Chicago, the second city, needed its own version of that kind of history. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. I've read that book. I've taught that book. And it seemed to me that... Uh, uh, it was time to let Chicago have its say also. And what we discover in your book is that Chicago, far from being a second city, actually had a, vi a very vibrant gay culture that stretched uh, into, in fact, we're located in the Bridgeport neighborhood, Bronzeville to our east, was the epicenter uh, of a lot of mid-century and, and first-century uh, gay culture here in Chicago. Can you tell us how that developed and how that came about? Yes, uh, and you're right. Uh, Bronzeville was extremely important in uh, uh, Chicago uh, during the time that I'm talking about. And for the people that I'm writing about, uh, it developed uh, about the same time as the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North happened. And in fact, uh, as I mentioned in the book, several places actually uh, some of the uh, gay men, African-American men, who were uh, a part of that scene in Bronzeville uh, came from the South and moved to Chicago, like many other people, to find some kind of freedom, whether it was economic or social or sexual. And so uh, it just developed over a period of time, and very quickly, uh, in the 1920s, it took off as it did in other places in Chicago. Now, was this because Bronzeville, which has historically been thought of in this city as uh, the home for African Americans after the Great Migration, was that because uh, Bronzeville was considered a place for marginal people? As you know, this is obviously a very segregated city, and Chicago has always had, a, let me put it politely, a difficult relationship with its people of color. Well, we also had 
it was also a cultural center with uh, what was known as the Stroll. Correct. Um, and it was a, yes. a like an epicenter of black culture as well. So I imagine jazz too. Jazz mm-hmm. as well. So. Sorry, Jim. Yeah, go ahead. I uh, just cut you off there. No, it's okay. I'm I'm sorry. Um, uh, some of the uh, people, uh, gay men who moved uh, to Chicago. Uh, were musicians, so it was uh, very um, likely that they chose uh, Bronzeville as the place to settle down in simply because they could find work there. Uh, Tony Jackson was one, Frankie Jackson was another. Uh, There are many, many, many people that I mention in the book who either were from Chicago or moved there uh, who found themselves at that particular Point in Chicago, Bronzeville, uh, as entertainers. And this included a number of drag queens, what we would call drag queens, who uh, performed on the stages of various cabarets and cafes and other places, theaters, for example, uh, in Bronzetown. I'm sorry. I want to go back to that in a second, but I, I do want to mention Tony Jackson, of course, is on the book cover. He was a superstar of ragtime for people that great don't know. Great cover. And a great cover of the book. Uh, Jack Johnson, the boxer, also owned a club in Bronzeville in that same period, oh, 1910 no to 1912. And when he was arrested on charges of the Mann Act, it was at that nightclub in Bronzeville. And uh, reading some of that, Jack Johnson appeared to have also uh, drag queens performing at his venue mm-hmm. as well. So a little, if you're concerned about people that are president is pardoning, I can offer that little bone bone. Yeah, I was just going to mention, he just got a pardon from he did King just Cheeto, get a pardon. So, yeah. um, I want to back up a little bit, though, before we get, we get too deep into this. One of the things you, you do very well, Jim, and this is, this is an enjoyable read. Uh, you know, one of the things we take a, a little pride in is that we do read this stuff cover to cover. You do go back into the very early history of Chicago and, and show, I think, rather ably that uh, – gay men and gay women uh, were around from the founding of Chicago and, in fact, were involved very early on in some of the most prominent cultural centers, things like the Chicago Athletic Club come to mind. You had people in Square. Yep, you had people at Fort Dearborn. And I wanted to ask you, how difficult was it as a historian to track down sources, uh, contemporary news sources, that allowed you to piece together this kind of information? It's a little bit difficult simply because, as I mentioned in the book, the terms that were used to identify what we think of as gay men or gay women were very different in those days. Uh, I start the book with a chapter on a man who at the time would have been called a sodomite. And uh, so I had to learn all these various different uh, labels and ways of looking at um, gay men in the early days of Chicago's history. Uh, it, it could be daunting at times, but um, you know, you <clears throat> excuse me, you just simply uh, continue, and you can uncover all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of uh, the lives of all kinds of people if you know how they were uh, identified either in the newspapers or in police reports or in regular sorts of histories of a particular time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but you, the, the man you started the book out with was John Wing, right? Yes, Journalist? Uh-huh. So for uh, 
for those of you who listened to our last show, we, we uh, had on the author of Slaughterhouse, and uh, John Wing made an appearance in that book. He, uh, he covered the stockyards. Uh, yes. I guess it was in the 60s, 1860s, right after the Civil War ended. Um, he got it, around. He did. <laughs> uh, he, uh, w- one of the things I think I was expecting coming into the book was um, religious persecution. Um, uh-huh. And, and there, w- there wasn't much of that. A lot of the, uh, the hatred and prejudice came from the press, came from the press, came from um, the judicial system. I think Police. Sears Roebuck even got in on the persecution yeah. party. <laughs> uh, they did. They, yeah, they, they had uh, marketed and developed a product that had a battery pack. Oh, right. Yeah. And yes, that good. was wired yes. to the genitals and like yes. continuously sent voltage. Through yeah. Because yeah. It, w- one of the theories, scientific theories, was uh, that masturbating would make a man insane and potentially homosexual. So, and like there was a developed theory that the, the more you masturbated, the more it depleted your vigor and the more likely you were to go crazy. Uh, yeah. So Sears sold a battery pack. <laughs> yes. Uh, so they were not the only ones, by the way. There were there was a lot of quack medicine around that. And and for people that are interested in this, if you've ever seen. Uh, uh, T. Corgasson Boyle's book on uh, Kellogg and uh, the Graham Cracker. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he talks about all the, the kind of health fads at the turn of the century that included these bizarre things, including electroshock therapy, by the way, which I do not recommend as a, as a cure for anything. Uh, but not, not to get too far off field, but I think you make a good point here uh, about the fact that there isn't much of the church in this and and Jim, particularly in our neighborhood, Bridgeport happens. If you're if you're not familiar with the neighborhood, we happen to have more churches than anywhere else in the city of Chicago. So I was also alarmed that the Roman Catholic Church didn't pop up its head here. Why, why was that? You know, I don't really know, and that surprised me also. I, I it may simply have been that they were involved with other things because you know at the time uh, drink was a problem. Um, Things they, they called it white slavery, uh, which was simply uh, white women being uh, kidnapped and then uh, trafficked into a sexual trade. Those sorts of things were probably more on their minds than these uh, sexual outlaws. There's also the problem that until the 1920s, um, gay men were virtually invisible. Uh, in the 1920s, a more effeminate man who wore uh, loud clothing, uh, wore makeup, at least dabs of it, uh, sometimes had long hair that he bleached. Uh, th- these people, which were called fairies, um, were the first people who... Um, society could recognize without a doubt as being um, uh, men loving men. And so I think all these things together uh, just um, maybe kept the church from from paying attention. I don't know what else uh, to uh, attribute it to. I wanted to talk about a a point in the book. It's early in the book where you're talking about uh, James Janes, who was a thief with his partner Smith, and they had a box. Um, which oh yes. yes, 
they carried between them, and then it had springs that were oh, really yeah, sensitive, yeah. so they would drop uh, items that they were shoplifting into this box. I knew people that did this in New York in the 80s, yeah. by the way. So I, I was like, oh, this is good stuff. And so when they got busted, they were at a, at a store called Mandel Brothers, and then they were going to head over to Marshall Fields. But what Mike mentioned earlier, I mean, this made it to, as you mentioned in her book, to the Galveston Daily News in Texas yeah. um, and New York's Evening World. And then James and Smith were tried, convicted, and fined seventy five dollars each, which was quite a bit of money back then. But it, I, I think there Absolutely. was like a, it, it, it's almost like a sideshow or tabloid um, appeal to a lot of these stories. Was was that your experience when you were researching? Is I, I know with the the language that was used at the time was quite um, offensive and and uh, sideshowish. Would you would you agree that 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 was the case when you were doing your research? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, the larger, uh, more staid newspapers, like the Tribune, uh, very rarely ran uh, news items about uh, gay men, uh, unless it was something really, really outrageous or very, very uh, horrific. Uh, typically, I, ha- I found uh, much of the material in things that we would call scandal sheets or, um, you know, that sort of newspaper. And there were several around at the time. Um, those kinds of, of newspapers that liked the more gory stories to print uh, or the more absurd or uh, sexually fueled stories, uh, they typically really um, would, if they heard about any particular individual or groups of individuals, uh, would readily publish articles about them. And since we're missing newspapers dearly these days, I would say that we'd love to have those scandal sheets back. But yeah. uh, since, we've, uh, since we've been talking about Jim's book, why don't we hear a passage from it? This is a reading from the boys of Fairytown very early on. We'll be back after these words from our reader, and we, of course, thank Shanna Van Volt, and this week, Junius Paul. There were many reasons why Landecker, Taft, and other artists preferred having studios in the fine arts building rather than in Tower Town, not the least of which was the fact that many of the buildings in the north side neighborhood were, in a word, dilapidated. Tower Town's apartments, mostly studios, were so small and lacked so many of the basic accommodations that residents shared kitchens and baths. Not only were the living quarters substandard, the quote, nearby tea shops were semi decrepit, in these establishments, as well as in cafes and restaurants in the neighborhood, tablecloths were lacking, window panes were cracked, and candle wax stripped in lumps on the bare and dirty floors, end quote. Given its shoddiness, rent in Tower Town was initially very cheap, which attracted bohemians, artists, and queer men alike. Chicago sociologists Harvey Warren Zorbaugh and Walter Reckless became authorities on Tower Town and its queer community. Zorbaugh observed that distorted forms of sex behavior find harbor in the village. Many homosexuals are among the frequenters of village tea rooms and studios. Reckless added that the apartment area, with its anonymous living conditions, allowed queer men a secret habitat for vice. In short, many queer men were drawn to Tower Town not only because of the inexpensive rent, but also because they could develop whatever sort of life they wanted without anyone noticing or interfering with them. The large number of people crammed together there made it possible for individuals to be completely ignored by their neighbors and to live in virtual anonymity. Unlike the small towns many had left behind where one's personal business easily became everyone else's. In Tower Town, not a soul would notice anything a queer man happened to say or do, 
and those who did notice wouldn't bother to respond or interfere, or they might just join in. Queer novelist and tattoo artist Samuel Stewart mentioned another aspect of the invisibility that society in general afforded queer men, understanding the complexity of the phenomenon. Midwest America views on homosexuality were very quaint and were based on the assumption that all people raised in civilized Christian countries knew better than to fall in love with, or bed, persons of the same sex. Knowing better then, the typical Chicagoan's mind made two breathtaking leaps of illogic. People did not do such things, and therefore such things must be non-existent. This kind of thinking protected us all. Though one might be teased for being a sissy, no one could believe that any person actually engaged in the abominable sin. We lived under the shadow and cover of such naivete. As important was the fact that because of their free love ideals, non-queer bohemians willingly accepted queer men into the neighborhood, whether they had artistic inclinations or not. In fact, as Ben Reitman observed, the homosexual group flocked to Bohemia to go to the forums, the street meetings, the tea rooms, and the hangouts. And whenever one goes to any kind of bohemian and radical meeting, he is sure to find a number of homos. They are accepted in full fellowship. No one insults them by calling them queer or kids them for being sissies. And welcome back to I-94. That was a reading from Jim Elledge's book, The Boys of Fairytown. It's out now from Chicago Review Press. Jim, I want to talk to you about Tower Town. Um, yes. You mentioned that in the book, it, the historians mark 1879 about the kind of the birth of Tower Town. And for those of you who live in Chicago now, it's hard to imagine this area being Bohemian, but it was the Gold Coast to the east, uh, Little Italy to the west, um, Wabash, Ohio, Erie, Huron, Superior, Pearson, Chestnut, and State Streets. Um, and then some of the Bohemians lived as far west as LaSalle Street. And, you know, these were the origins of Tower Town. But there was a lot of famous artists that came out of there. I remember reading about Leindecker. Yes, uh, he was a great illustrator. Yeah. Yes, uh, genuinely great. Studied at uh, the Art Institute. Um, and then there was another artist, McCutcheon, um, who also had uh, – and he, he actually used images from the gay community in his artwork and – can you tell us a little bit about the artists that were inhabiting Tower Town during this time? Yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure that McCutcheonson uh, was actually gay. I don't think he was. Oh, I don't I'm know sorry. for sure. No, it's okay. Uh, but he did know and uh, hung out with a lot of them uh, at the time. So uh, he knew a lot about uh, their culture and uh, uh, that sort of thing. So... Uh, it would be very easy to just assume that he, that he was. Um, yeah, the two that you mentioned, well, the one in, in particular that in particular that you mentioned, uh, Leniger, uh, became a very very famous uh, illustrator for all of the major magazines uh, of the time, and his uh, lover uh, became uh, his chief model, and on some of the ads. Uh, Leninger would uh, uh, illustrate advertisements as well as covers of various magazines, and some of and for some of these, uh, he would use his lover as the model, and he would often, uh, if there was more than one person in the ad or on the cover, it would also be, or it would be both, both of the people pictured would be his lover. He would uh, just simply put him in a different pose. That was Charles um, Beach, correct? I'm sorry. Was that Charles Beach? Yes. 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 Okay. Charles Beach. 
who was about 20 years younger than he. I don't remember exactly uh, what the age difference was. Uh, and they were together uh, for their entire lives. Uh, they were long-term. Um, there were several illustrations that Leninger uh, uh, drew in which he put um, Beach in female costume. And one that's very interesting is uh, one in which he put, he depicted uh, Beach as a Statue of Liberty as well as a Boy Scout, which I thought was very <laughs> interesting, funny, and maybe a little peculiar at the same time. Of course, artists do tend to uh, draw the people that are right in front of them. Uh, yeah. So from a, a, a practical sense, I can see why that made uh, perfect sense. I also oh, absolutely, man- absolutely. And actually, Beach had been hired. That's how he and uh, uh, Leninger met. He had been hired um, to model for them uh, when they moved from Chicago to New York uh, and set up their business there. Uh, and so he was both uh, an employee as well as uh, the lover of the, the president of the, uh, the company. I also wanted to mention Samuel Stewart before we move on, and uh, he was a, a tattoo artist, novelist, and essayist uh, from Chicago, and I, I believe Chicago Review dropped one of his books a couple of years ago, a book of his essays, and um, the reason I, I, I wanted to bring up Stewart is he's pretty famous here in Chicago. I'm, I'm covered in tattoos, and he's a pretty famous, not pretty, he's yeah. a famous uh, among the tattoo community, especially those who study the history. We also had Cliff Raven, uh, who was yeah. here, who was another gay um, tattoo artists and they and they started out working on the the Navy boys and um, I just want to mention Stewart's name because if you can get a hold of some of his essays he was a fascinating character and also a fascinating writer. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to add about Stewart? Um, there is a biography uh, that has just recently been been published, maybe four years ago or five years ago, called Secret Historian. Yes, by Justin uh, Spring, which is a a wonderful book about yeah. Stewart and 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 uh, very revealing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting book. Justin Spring wrote that book. It, it came out in uh, 2010, and of course, Stewart okay. himself wrote a history of sailors, uh, punks, gays, punks not being having the same meaning as, uh, say, the words tattooed on my knuckles uh, or punk rock, but um, having to do with with uh, gay men. Uh, that came out, I believe, in 1985, uh, which is also a pioneering gay history that we're, we've been remiss to talk about. Someone re-released that recently. I can't remember. I, I think you're correct. It may be Chicago Review. Okay. Because it was, it was a fairly well-known book. Um, but Tower Town, I, to get back to this before we have to go to break, Tower Town um, today, as, as I think Jeremy started out mentioning, seems so different. It's so wealthy now. Jim, why was this area that, that to us right now seems to be probably the most segregated and wealthiest area of our city financially, why was this a nexus for what would be considered the ultimate outlaw culture? Well, at the time, it was on uh, almost at the edge of the city. Uh, you have to remember that Chicago grew from the center, the loop, and outward. And so just geographically, uh, that part of town at that time was very cheap because it was so far away from the center of everything that was going on, uh, whether business or cultural. Um, and so uh, it, 
because artists, whether they're visual artists or poets or dancers or whatever, uh, rarely have any money. Uh, they were attracted to, to that area that was relatively close to where they wanted to be and yet inexpensive. And I also want to mention something else. This was also the home of something that still exists to this day, which is the Dill Pickle Club. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the Dill Pickle Club in, in gay life and society there? Because it, it continues to resonate uh, through the modern era here, especially in the artistic communities uh, on the south side of our city. Yes. Um, it was on the north side, of course, there in Tower Town. And it lasted for uh, about 20 years, at least in, in that form, um, about 20 years or so. Uh, it was a place where all sorts of writers and painters, uh, etc., cetera, uh, came together. They were bohemian, leaning more left in terms of politics, usually, most of them anyway. Um, they had all kinds of, they would produce all kinds of plays that uh, people had, uh, people from the neighborhood had written. Uh, they would have uh, masquerade balls, which were very uh, uh, strongly attended by gay men who could dress and drag if they wanted to. Uh, they had all kinds of lectures about uh, gay topics. Uh, uh, one was something like, is the pervert, the question was, uh, or the topic was, is the pervert uh, to be uh, accepted into society? Um, they were very open there at the Dill Pickle to gay men in general. Uh, and I think that it became a place where gay men new to the city could go and get meet other gay men, get information from them about where to live, uh, which uh, boarding houses were gay-friendly, which were not, uh, and all that sort of thing, where they could go to eat, for example, where they could go to meet others like themselves. Uh, so the Dill Pickle was an extremely important um, aspect of gay culture and gay life at the time. Very interesting. Well, we need to take a break to uh, remind folks, the people that make this station possible. We're going to be back after the break with Jim. We're talking with Jim Elledge. He's the author of The Boys of Fairytown. And, of course, you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. Lorenzo Bonyard recalled that in the early 1930s, he would watch scores of female impersonators traipse down to the street corner swishing. It was a familiar scene in Bronzeville when he was an adolescent. Bonyard had moved to Chicago the same year that Gerber founded the Society for Human Rights and was very aware of some of the queer men in the neighborhood. I'd be standing at the corner, he continued, watching them, taking it all in, because I admired them, you know? They had this long hair and the makeup and everything. Plus, there was making money, too, for dancing. A few years later, Bonyard, who had realized he was queer when he was 12, became a female impersonator himself and adopted the name Nancy Kelly. He appeared on the cabin in stage with Valda Gray, Petite Swanson, the sepia Joan Crawford, and the sepia Mae West, the queer African-American female impersonator superstars of Bronzeville. All of them performed at its hottest night spots. Whether appearing as solo artists or in a chorus line, 
Brownsville's female impersonators appeared on the same stages as its musical giants such as Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, and Cab Calloway. Their glimmering sequin gowns, expensive wigs, high heels, and ever-flawless makeup guaranteed fans would not simply lionize them but follow them puppy-dog-like from one cabaret to another, from theater to dance hall to cabaret. To be sure, there were other talented female impersonators around Bronzeville. Jean LaRue, Nina Mae McKay, Peaches Browning, Doris White, Francis D. Dixie Lee. But they were only good, perhaps better than average, but it never quite earned the superstar status. One of Chicago's entertainment reviewers claimed that there were countless female impersonators on the Windy City stages, but that didn't mean they were all equally talented. He noted that quite a few can dress and look the part, and yet too many of those have no stage ability. Some can sing but cannot dance, others handle their feet well on the floor but cannot sing. The reviewer concluded it really requires a combination of dance and song to win a place in one of these floor shows. Queer Men had become fixtures in Bronzeville almost as soon as its first cabaret opened its doors. Although the owners of the cafes and cabarets where the female impersonators performed were flaunting Chicago's ordinance against individuals wearing, quote, a dress not belonging to his or her sex, unquote, in public, and although female impersonators might face a backlash from some of their family members, neighbors, and strangers because they cross-dressed and were queer, they also earned respect and even envy from many others. The cabarets in which they performed offered them better than average salaries. While Lorenzo Banyard made $12 a week at his day job as a dishwasher at OYMCA, his alter ego, Nancy Kelly, earned $10 a show, three shows a night, during the weekends. In short, he earned five times as much as a female impersonator during the weekend than he did at his day job the rest of the week. Female impersonators sang, they didn't lip-sync to recordings, risque renditions of popular songs, told off-color jokes, and hobnobbed with the audience. They brought droves of fans into the cabarets and theaters where they performed, among them nationally known celebrities. It wasn't an easy job either, as it may appear to have been. The sepia Gloria Swanson, knee Walter Winston, who was considered the best of the best, quote, literally entertained all night, entrancing patrons with a whiskey voice, his every gesture and mannerisms more feminine than those of any female, his corsets pushing his plumpness into a sweltering and well-modeled bosom. Welcome back. You are listening to I-94. We are live on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This, of course, is Lumpen Radio. We just heard a reading from The Boys of Fairytown, Sodomites, Female Impersonators, Third Sexers, Pansies, Queers, and Sex Morons in Chicago's First Century. It is a book written by Jim Elledge. Out now from the Chicago Review Press, Jim is joining us on the line from Kentucky. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you. Jim, I had uh, mentioned judicial bias a little earlier, and um, I was a little baffled by some of the charges that came out of, uh, of the prosecutions. One of them was masquerading in public. Another one was keeper of a disorderly house. They, they sounded like they were made up on the, sp- on the spot. Um, were these laws that were on the books, or did, did, did laws come into being as a result of that, that prejudice and bad press? Probably a little bit of both. Uh, you know, uh, phrases like keeper of a disorderly house, uh, those, that sort of, of phrase, uh, a charge, was usually uh, used against uh, madams of a house of prostitution, 
uh, of saloon keepers where uh, uh, men, uh, you know, broke out into fights all the time, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think what the police did was simply to take some of the um, uh, laws that were already on the books and simply apply them, whether they really fit or not, to uh, the gay situation. And certainly later on, or at various times, I guess I should say, uh, laws were introduced in order to that uh, laws were introduced that really did focus on uh, the gay situation, like the one that you just mentioned about uh, not dressing in the clothing of the opposite sex. Right. Uh, that probably originated uh, uh, as a means to uh, punish gay men. And by the way, if you're interested, it, Jim just mentioned, uh, touched on it obliquely, but if you're interested in the history of Chicago's notoriously rough saloon culture, Sin in the Second City, of course, as well as the book yes. Chicago Confidential, we'll break those down for you. The 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 saloon scene in our city, right from uh, here in, in Bridgeport all the way into the loop with the Bucket of Blood and other places, was notorious the for, for the vice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, People offering, uh, there, there was a great uh, thing about the Bucket of Blood was that you could sleep there overnight and in the morning, they'd give you a nickel cup of beer that was left over from the slops from the night before <laughs> in the drains. A, a, Lifesaver. A detail that I've never forgotten. Uh, but <laughs> Jim, I, I wanted to make a correction to the uh, Samuel Stewart book that I was thinking of was written under his tattoo name, Philip Sparrow Tells All, and it was actually University of Chicago University Press. Chicago. Um, I don't like to, I'm a librarian, so I don't like to give people the wrong publication yes, so exactly. i just wanted to <laughs> clarify that so no fake news on the show not yet anyway <laughs> uh, we, uh, the last reading we heard and i want to kind of go back to this uh was very concerned with with people who did masquerade in public and female impersonation jim why was this such a a key fixture in the gay community of this era because it was we should point out, and your, your book makes a very good case for this, it was universally popular. I mean, it wasn't just people from the gay community that came to see uh, what we today call drag queens and female impersonators. Tourists. It too. was tourists. People came from all over to, to go to the clubs. They, they were packed in there to see these people. So why was this so important, Jim? It was important to the gay culture because it was a, an, a time, an event, uh, in which men could be what they thought of as themselves. Uh, in those days, unlike now perhaps, uh, gay men often dressed in women's clothing, not because they were really um, interested in women's clothing, but, but to signal to other men, particularly to what we would call today the, the masculine or the butch men, uh, that they were interested in sex with other men. Uh, in terms of the theater productions of, of drag queens and stuff, um, it was simply a way of, of all sorts of people to get together and be entertained. Uh, you have to remember that the drag queens in those days did not simply lip-sync as they do now. They actually sang and danced. Uh, they often rewrote popular songs to make them uh, salacious uh, and uh, maybe to gear them toward uh, the gay culture using uh, words that would be very important to gay men. 
and perhaps not known to the heterosexual audience. Um, but you have to remember that, that especially during the, the 20s, during what historians have called the pansy craze, uh, gay men uh, were seen as comrades in a battle against the uh, more conservative elements in society. And those who did not think of them that way still would go to their shows just to be entertained or, or even to make fun of them. Uh, they could go home then and talk to their uh, neighbors about the weird people they were uh, watching on stage the night before. There was an ad that I found uh, that was uh, published very early in one of the, the newspapers in Chicago, and it was advertising um, a drag contest. And the... Um, at a, and this contest would be at a ball, a masquerade ball. And uh, the ad was aimed at families. It was not a, aimed at the gay culture, but at the heterosexual culture, family people. And it said, bring your kids to see the funny sights. Now, that could have been something by which they meant uh, something like what we would think of as homophobia, or it could mean simply that men dressed as women sometimes were funny-looking. Or it could also mean that there were other costumes at the same time that were funny, clowns or whatever. Uh, we really don't know what they meant by it, but they invited the entire family, not simply gay people. So it became very quickly uh, in gay history, at least in Chicago, uh, and a, a situation in which many people could enjoy uh, uh, drag. And as you note, uh, Ward Alderman, Ward bosses put on these shows. Yeah. Two of them were, were huge. Ward. First Ward and second Ward yeah. Alderman. Uh, and they... Uh, were Bath pilloried. House John, right? Bathhouse John, yeah. yeah. Uh, Hinky Dink, right? And, yeah. Uh, they, they were uh, yeah. pilloried in the press here for that, uh, which uh, today, I mean, I guess I can see uh, what Tom, uh, Tom Tunnel up in... Uh, in Andersonville doing it, I guess he would put on. He's Boys Town, right? Tom? I'm not sure. I think Tom is, but um, that's getting off the topic. I, I wanted to ask you how much, I mean, because where I, uh, where I grew up in Britain, the, there is a long tradition of panto, which is the, uh, short for pantomime, where men do dress up as women. And anybody who's familiar with Monty Python's Flying Circus will know that most of the female parts in that show, with a couple exceptions, are actually played by Michael Palin and, and John Cleese in drag. Did some of that tradition come over and inform this as well? Because in Britain, um, while there's obviously a large homosexual community that has been there for a long time, that was divorced from it. It was more about the fact that men didn't want to share the stage with women, which was just plain old misogyny. That's how Shakespeare was. Right. It was just plain old misogyny in this case. But I, I wondered if that influenced this at all. Yes, I think so. And and I think that it, it actually comes from the music hall tradition and vaudeville, uh, both of which, as you said, uh, used men in women's clothing for a variety of reasons. Some of it was because of misogyny. Uh, some of the men who performed in vaudeville, uh, on Chicago stages anyway, uh, were obviously heterosexual. Uh, others were pretty obviously gay, and some no one really knows for sure. Uh, one of the more important ones was Julian Eltinge, 
And uh, he made uh, a lot of, of effort to, uh, in the press and elsewhere to uh, suggest that he was not gay at all, although he never married. Uh, and it appears that he probably really was. In fact, a lot of historians think he was. Uh, but it was a big um, part of vaudeville. Uh, and so it was easy for these families to think, well, you know, we we um, have seen uh, these these performers on vaudeville stages. Why not go to the um, masquerade balls that were being uh, hosted at the time and enjoy them there, too? The last thing that Jim Lee wanted to get into today was the and these names will be relevant to many people is the J. Edgar Herver post-pansy panic going into the Albert Kinsey studies that were done here and Albert Kinsey uh, studied the gay culture here and also participated in it, which I had no idea uh, here in Chicago. <laughs> um, but would you tell us a little bit, you know, I think this this is kind of brings us into the modern day, you know, the you know, with the troubling, you know, op- opposition to gay marriage and things like that. But it really started. Well, let's not say that, but the the current political climate could actually, I, in my opinion, be traced back to Hoover with this hysteria. Can we go in a little bit about the uh, post-Pansy panic and tell us a little bit about Kinsey? Sure. Um, the, 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 the term post-Pansy panic refers to the uh, Pansy craze of the 1920s, uh, which we've been talking about for a while now. And by the time of uh, the uh, Great Depression, which happened in October of 1929, um, the, the, the city government, the city fathers, uh, started uh, working against those cabarets um, uh, and restaurants and whatever that were hosting uh, some of these gay people on their stages. The reason was because uh, prohibition had taken over. And uh, in in banning and shutting down cabarets, for example, uh, they they were shutting out uh, gay men's uh, ability to make a living as uh, uh, female impersonators. Uh, added on to all of this was the fact that about in the late 30s, there became a, a, a rash of very violent uh, crimes, uh, often sexual in nature, but not always, but often against women and particularly children, both men, uh, both girls and boys. And J. Edgar Hoover, as head of the FBI, uh, stepped in and said that, uh, in essence, that uh, these people who were uh, uh, attacking women and the children uh, were what he called uh, sexual morons, sex morons. Uh, and in the public I, in the public's understanding of what that meant, and Hoover helped it along a little bit, they came to, to associate the sex moron with gays. And it was because uh, people with mental uh, disabilities, uh, who were often called morons at the time, um, were believed not to be able to control their their themselves in any way, shape, or form, not just their ur- urges, but everything in their lives. 
And of course, by this point, uh, and actually, I think, uh, for quite a while uh, in Chicago's history, uh, gay men were considered uh, to be people who could not control their sexual uh, appetites either. So the two ideas, the homosexual and the sexual moron, or the sex moron, uh, became one and the same in the public's imagination. Uh, and so uh, anytime there was a um, heinous crime that they could not find someone to blame immediately, they went round the day by day, I mean the authorities, uh, pinned it on gay men and would uh, uh, raid gay bars, uh, try to, to catch gay men uh, in acts uh, of, of uh, sexual nature, that sort of thing, and, and take them to jail. And so this era became known as the post-pansy panic. Uh, in the old, mid to late 40s, actually I guess it started in 1939, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, Kinsey was, um, Kinsey was 39, yeah. Yeah, okay, good, thank you. Yeah, Kinsey stepped in and started uh, his um, uh, research into sexuality in the United States. And the first group that he uh, began to interview and try to figure out what was going on, on in their culture were the gay men of Chicago, uh, particularly those who lived in uh, Tower Town. Uh, and in the process, he himself began to have sexual uh, contact with other men. Uh, initially, uh, in uh, out-of-the-way uh, public places such as bathrooms, uh, back rooms, that sort of thing, uh, later on, he began having uh, sexual encounters uh, in a more private kind of way, like in hotels or whatever. And we should point out that, you know, some of the, the stuff that, uh, that Jim is talking about, it may seem strange to us today, but um, people were trying to use scientific or pseudoscientific evidence to... Um, demonize or make gay people another. In fact, uh, it's worth noting that uh, Masters and Johnson, who of course worked at the Kinsey Institute from the late 1960s through the mid-1970s, ran what they called a gay conversion therapy program, which of course is is considered widely, first of all, wrong and, and quack science in, in our modern era. As did Michelle right. Bachman's husband. That is correct. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, we're not even talking about conservative Christians here, but <laughs> reputed, reputable, seemingly reputable university scientists. University of Johnson, Chicago, correct. sociology, uh, yeah. You know, Kinsey was at Indiana, uh, Master and Johnson were at Virginia. These were reputable people that tried to treat uh, homosexuality as a mental illness. And, of course, for many years, homosexuality was in the diagnostic of uh, the DSM-2 and DSM-3 as a mental illness. And yeah. it came into being as a mental illness, and I think Jim makes a very good point about this, in the post-pansy panic, and it was largely stoked by political fear. It was not necessarily stoked by um, any actual evidence that uh, homosexuality either was, was wrong or was a mental disorder. This was a completely made-up thing. Uh, and, of course, it destroyed uh, many lives uh, across, uh, not only here in Chicago, but, but around the world. It's a particularly painful period that has uh, been capped, of course, now in our modern era with the sudden recognition of the right of everyone to marry. And, and Jim, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about 
looking just because we only have a few minutes left in the program, but looking at the vantage point right now, your book is going to be reissued uh, this month from Chicago Review Press. You, you wrote it a little while ago, but looking at the, the, the landscape right now with, uh, you know, gay marriage legal, uh, a right to privacy seemingly validated by the Supreme Court, what do you think all the, the work that the people that did that you, you wrote about in The Boys of Fairy Town, what, what led to the modern day? And, and looking back, what do you think uh, the future holds for the gay community here in Chicago? You know, it's, it's really uh, maybe impossible to tell. Uh, with the political climate, excuse me, as it is, I am concerned. I'm concerned about the conservative uh, bent of our current government, uh, our, uh, or their, I should say, their uh, willingness to ignore facts and to make up lies and repeat the lies over and over and over. Uh, I'm concerned that my fellow citizens uh, don't educate themselves about all kinds of issues, but prefer to follow uh, blindly uh, people who are out to make a buck rather than to uh, uh, work for truth or peace or whatever it happens to be. Um, I think right now is a, is a crux. I believe very strongly we're at an intersection, and what happens in the next couple of years will, will uh, have a huge effect uh, on the future. Um, it reminds me very much of the 60s. I mean, uh, all, all the paranoia that's going on now, all of the fear that many of us have now about our, our lives uh, reminds me of the early days and into and beyond the uh, end of the Vietnam War era. And so I think people just simply need to um, educate themselves about political situations and not believe people simply because they happen to be a president or a senator or a congressperson. Everyone, we've been talking with the author of The Boys of Fairytown, Jim Ellich. Jim, thank you so much for Thanks, your time Jim. today. Thank we you, Jim. really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. You're very welcome. Jim's book is out now from the Chicago Review Press. And with that, we're going to leave uh, you guys with a final reading from the boys of Fairytown. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that I-94 will be back next week. We are here live every Sunday at 11 o'clock. We're with Nafisa Thompson-Spire. She is the author of The Heads of the Colored People. Nafisa. Nafisa from, well, you know, we never pronounce names right on this I show. asked her. Did you? Yeah. Good man. <laughs> for Jeremy, for Mike, I am Jamie Trecker. Wherever you are, stay safe, have a great week, and thank you so much for listening to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Stories of girls and women who were beaten, raped, and murdered flooded the national news and were reported in Time, the Saturday Evening Post, the Christian Century, and The Nation, among many other popular magazines, as well as every newspaper in the country. In the year in which Carlson was arrested and committed suicide rather than face what the future held for him, the New York Times alone published 147 articles describing horrific murder rapes, most perpetuated on women or girls and a few on boys, by men who were considered out of control. The entire country was alarmed, horrified, and anxiety-ridden about the sex crimes, and terrified and angry citizens began holding rallies demanding the authorities, not just local law enforcement but the FBI as well, put an end to them. Instead of trying to quell the alarm that had arisen over the sex crimes, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover fanned the flames of panic, pouring gasoline on them until they burst into a conflagration. 
He pointed his finger at an enshrouded monster that no one could actually define, but that everyone was certain they knew. Degenerate sex offenders. According to Hoover, they attacked the innocent every 43 minutes, day and night, in the United States. In a similar vein, David G. Whittles announced in an article he wrote for the Saturday Evening Post that, quote, sex killers are psychopathic personalities, unquote. And while he admitted that there were no statistics that revealed how many such creatures existed, he nevertheless estimated that thousands are loose in the country today. Like Hoover, Whittles had no statistics to back up any of his claims, but again as with Hoover, his language inflamed readers who were eager to blame anyone identified as a perpetrator of such crimes. Central to both Hoover's and Whittles' reports was the idea that certain men, for Hoover, the degenerate, for Whittles, the psychopathic, couldn't control their sexual urges. Of course, much of the general public already viewed queer men that way, which is why Carlson's lawyer asked him about being able to control himself. As early as the mid-1800s, Chicago sexologists Dr. G. Frank Lidston and Dr. James G. Kiernan had popularized the notion that queer men were little more than women, and like women, they were unable to control their emotions, which included their sexual longings, urges, and lusts as words like moron and psychopath, terms used for people unable through their mental disorders to control themselves, became associated with the murder rapist, the queer man became, because of his presumed lack of control, the face of the even vaguer sex moron, sexual psychopath, and similarly hazy figures. Calmer men who wanted to get to the bottom of the sex crimes and not stir up the anxiety rapidly growing across the United States published reports that exposed Hoover's and Whittle's claims as hokum. For example, after studying evidence in both police and FBI sex crime reports, Morris Plaskow, a New York City magistrate, noticed that queer men may have been considered nuisances because of the scandal and annoyance they left in their wake, but there was no proof that they were a danger to women and children. Even state-mandated investigative groups like the New Jersey Commission on Sex Crime countered the popularly held notion with its investigation's conclusion that the thousands of monsters that Hoover and Whittles feared were the products of a well-stirred imagination. Despite such efforts, Hoover's agenda won out. The United States preferred a well-stirred nightmare over fact, and all sorts of individuals came up with ways of controlling the sex moron, by which they invariably meant queer men. Although he wasn't convinced that they were potential murderers, Dr. Thomas K. Gruber, for example, wanted to imprison the floating populations of female impersonators that he believed roam at liberty in large cities. Ideas such as his, Hoover's, and Whittle's helped to fuel the crackdown in Chicago's queer-friendly cabarets. The Chicago Police Department began investigating resorts that were accepting of, or dedicated to, queer patronage along with certain streets, alleys, parks, and other places that men used to search for sexual partners. It also paved the way for infetted raids on the homes of presumed queer men and the confiscation of anything that might be used as evidence against them. Books and Literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode features the book The Boys of Fairytown by Jim Elledge, out now from the Chicago Review Press. This episode originally aired on June 3rd, 2018. 
I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shannon Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.